and welcome to the FEZ show. We have had two unbelievably crazy races in Valencia. So much to talk about. I can't wait to delve into this one. Alongside me today, just one person, but a brilliant person nonetheless, Mr. Edward Hunter. Welcome. How are you this evening? Oh, oh you're too kind, Jack. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling all right. I'm very excited to talk about all the interesting goings on in Valencia. Some of it controversial, some of it just some some good old-fashioned racing and, and strategy. So uh, uh, let's get into it. We have to start with Saturday because, okay, a lot of people, we have to start with the end. So we're going to straight to the end because it's the main talking about it. The farce, whatever you want to call it. Personally, I don't think it's a farce, right? It's just something that can happen in a motor race. And the fallout first, before we delve into it, Ed, the fallout from me on Twitter was a bit of a shame because, okay, yes, we don't want to see cars run out of energy. We don't want to see, you know, this sort of mix up or, or really bad ending to what was shaping up to a great race. But it's motorsport, but it's the rules to a casual fan, right? Maybe it doesn't look great, right? And it maybe it paints electric vehicles into a, in a bad light per se. But for me, it's still a sport. And things can go well. Things can be brilliant, right? And people were making reference to Pascal Verline in Mexico. And we had that amazing finish where Lucas Agassi just passes him across the line. And that was due to energy reduction and, and Pascal Verline having to be a bit more careful with his energy. But obviously, Saturday was a bit different. So I just want to get your initial views. Like, did you see that? You know, people calling it Formula Marie's darkest days. And I'm like, I don't think it was that bad. Yeah, especially when you consider earlier in the season we were talking about a missile strike during the podium ceremony in uh, the second round in Saudi Arabia, or even last year when we had the track worker Hilda Moreira sadly lose his life in Berlin. Both of those very dark days uh, compared to this, which was yeah embarrassing, but darkest day in Formula history. I, I don't think so. And you know there are a couple. I won't name names, but there were a couple of people who were being a bit melodramatic about it. Yeah, and it's sad to see Formula with you know. The, people, the detractors who are basically waiting for Formula E to slip up and never they never comment when it's going well, they only comment when it's going badly. And then you have the you know people who are really into Formula E also criticizing it as well. Maybe you know because it looks bad and because other people are going to complain about it. So it's it's an odd situation, but yeah, it was really really caused by that final uh, the reduction, just that final safety guy and a sort of a perfect storm, a confluence, if you will, of uh, unfortunate events as a. Basically, the cost across the uh, finish line about 15 seconds before the clock ran out, which meant instead of having to do one more lap, they had to do two more laps. And a lot of drivers uh, weren't quite able to pull that off. Some were, though, and uh, benefited enormously. Yeah, like, we here at Formula Reason, and I'm sure other people have as well, have been looking into that. But actually, after further investigation, after further calculations and maths, no one was actually at fault. The FIA, people were pointing fingers heavily at the FIA and the FIA obviously pointing fingers back at drivers and saying, well, actually, you know, Antonio Felix da Costa, for example, could have could have helped us, could have, you know, made the race a lap shorter so everyone would have finished and we wouldn't have had this ending. And there was a lot of blame games and, and, and people were looking to put someone at fault. But with the, with the investigations that we've done, really and truly, no one was at fault because the FIA have made the correct... Um, have made the correct like deductions. People thought they hadn't made the correct deductions. Even we, at some point, thought that they didn't. But then, as I said, once we investigated a bit more, we found out that actually they did. So let's just explain how this sort of came about. So basically, what had happened 
is the FIA reduce energy, right? One kilowatt per minute under a safety car period. And then however long that safety car period is, for example, so five minutes per se, um, it would be five, it would be five kilowatts that would be re reduced. If it was, for example, five minutes and 45 seconds, even if it's five minutes and 59 seconds, six kilowatts is not, it doesn't matter for what is in the second bracket, whatever minute it's in. So if the safety car period ends at five minutes, 59 seconds, dot nine, 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 it's still five kilowatts that would be reduced. It wouldn't be six, if that makes sense, right? So obviously they've reduced five, but because they reduced that five kilowatts, so let's say they reduced five kilowatts for one safety car period, the battery power itself is 54 kilowatts. So that's how much power, usable energy that they can have at the start of the race. But when they reduce five mm -hmm. kilowatts, the next time that they do that, it says, let's say they have another safety car period and it's another five kilowatts per se. So that deduction is not from 54 kilowatts per hour. It's done from 49 kilowatts per hour until the next one and the next one and the next one. And we had five, Ed, we had five safety car periods. So by the time, right, by the time the final energy reduction was done, the FIA were doing that calculation from 38 kilowatts. Now, what we've learned, and I think what the series has learned in general from this, is that the one, the longer the safety, not really the more safety cars, because if we have like short safety car periods, for example, two, three minutes, then it's not going to be a massive extra deduction per se. But the longer the safety car period, let's say we have one safety car period that's 15 minutes long. I'm sure if it was going to be that long, it, they would probably have red flagged it. But let's say if it's a, a really long eight, seven minute, then you're taking that eight. And then let's say we have another one then you've got 16 kilowatts. So the, the maths becomes, so pe effectively though, Ed, the longer the safety car period, the bigger the chance of a bigger energy reduction later down the line for your second one, because your second one would then be, eight kilowatts from 49 kilowatts for example so then it's a bigger energy reduction i hope all of that makes sense i think i lost my way a little bit <laughs> but i i think um i've explained the main point of why that's happened and why actually the last energy yes it was five kilowatts yes we've had a five, but it was actually such a big percentage difference of 13 percent that was actually taken from the cars rather than if we did it from um 54 it would have been only nine yeah and so you had uh da costa who went from something like uh uh, 13 or 12 percent down to six uh, i think it was uh, i think it was down to six percent that you had to do the last yeah two so he had he had percent yeah yeah so the cost had 19 percent so he'd taken away 13 percent of energy um and devries had i think like 22 percent or something before yeah. the safety goals came out and uh yeah so i, I think the maths are right there i was just about to because i've been doing them over my head for like several times for most of this week just to make sure like, is that right is that right surely it can't be right but it is right you're right <laughs> so um so yeah um there are a lot of people who i think were also being critical of the rule in general which is a bit odd because they weren't saying anything when it was giving us all these uh dramatic finishes it's it, it's then complaining when it uh, suddenly becomes a problem uh, a lot of people have been critical of the time braces as well i think if you did it in those laps though then you have the potential issue of uh the cars having to do 30 laps but um with the energy they've got uh because they still use a little bit of energy under the safety guy even with braking and regening and it's even more difficult to do that at valencia where it's mainly straights and vast corners with only a couple of little chicanes added in so they can actually get some regening and braking in uh, <laughs> uh without that it's it's a uh, on a normal street circuit it'd be a much more easier thing but uh but yeah so I, I do think the circuit played into it the fact that it was raining also didn't help uh because the lap times were so much slower anyway but mostly they would cause more incidents the rain so yeah it was 
a unique set of circumstances uh like like i said a confluence of, of things going on if just one little thing had ha- had happened a little bit differently then uh pro- probably we would have seen maybe either what just one more lap instead of two or potentially um things going a bit different i think what also didn't help was um it being a normal traditional purpose-built circuit when lotterer causes it to go and got stuck in the gravel there wasn't like on a street circuit you'd have a crane to lift her out there they actually venture out into the gravel to retrieve the porsche so that, I think that was why they needed that safety car right at the end. So, so yeah, um, I, I think I answered your question there. I've sort of because because it's such a complicated issue. Almost my brain is fried trying to think about maths and also the reason for the maths. <laughs> yeah, like I think really and truly, everyone's learned from this situation. I think the teams have learned from this situation. I think we even in 45 minutes even in street courses but because of the rain we've had so much more incidents and as you said like things that we'd never seen before cars getting stuck in a gravel trap for example which needs to go out and that takes longer than them actually crashing into the wall and there's a crane there to just quickly or there's mechanics there to just push them into the runoff area not that's like you know 20 yards away per se um so you know racing on actual circuits in a sense there and i think we'll get onto this topic a little bit later red in terms of what we've actually thought of what fe actually racing at an actual circuit compared to the street circuits that we well i say know and love but i know a lot of people have their opinions on that but i think for us that we know and love um because i think it'd be quite interesting because obviously that wouldn't have happened in the street circuit we would have had more racing time but because we have these gravel traps and we have these things in a natural circuit you know potentially there's less time if there is a mistake and there is a safety car it potentially deducts more racing time but we'll put that to the side for one second do you think the teams just were caught out when you know five safety cars is a huge amount of safety cars in formula e and it was just one of those learning things that we need to take into account but it, I, I also think if we were to have five safety cars again in another race something like this could happen again so you know what you know where do, where do we go from here like do we say Luke, the rules the rule this was it it's worked brilliantly we've had one bad race doesn't mean we're gonna have another bad race it's unlikely but because there is that probability there is that probability chance of it happening again do we try and find something to say okay how can we make sure that we don't run out of energy on the final lap or if we're going green for the final lap of racing or for two additional laps that we don't actually run out of energy. Well, that's interesting. There's got to be a balance, right? Because what we want to see as fans is uh, it to be a challenge for the teams. They've got these really efficient, uh, you know, powertrains that, and, and obviously the regenerative braking, which is really impressive in these Formula E cars. So we want to see that tested to its maximum. We want to see if uh, we don't want to see safety cars basically letting off the field, which was, I think. Up in, I think in season five, that was the rules. We didn't have the energy reduction until I think even midway through season five or at the beginning of season six, I think. I'm pretty sure the, the rule was ratified. I think it was brought in for like season five, to be honest with you. I think yeah, I, I think so, season. yeah, because Mexico was in the middle of season five and that they had the red flag, I think. And either that was the first time they did they did those rules. They basically restarted the race without everyone having full energy and just with 40 minutes plus one lap left to go. Or... Um, that was the first time we saw it. I can't remember which. I'm pretty sure that may be just the blueprint and from then on that race being so successful, so dramatic, we're only Nissan and maybe Pascal Valley just running out at the very end just before the line and having the coast to make sure he didn't get disqualified uh, and Lucas Agassi breezing past uh, as a result and that being a really dramatic uh, moment. 
and that being really successful that was what really caused that well energy reduction is not such a bad idea and that was why that was what sort of put the momentum for this rule to be put in place in the first place uh so yeah i, I definitely think having that challenge is great we've had like that's one moment but there's several others uh, where we've had close finishes where people have been on the bubble and they've either made it or they've just run out and it's been really heartbreaking right but that's formula e and uh, i think what we don't want too much is repeats of uh of what we saw on Saturday in Valencia, where we have what well, like seventeen cars are running before the restart, and only nine finish the race. And even the ones that did finish, like Jorik Vern, for example, finished last of the nine finishers classified, had to coast to a lap six minutes, almost six minutes in length. He was like four minutes twenty behind uh, De Vries, who won. And uh, yeah, there was there was an element of luck in it as well. I think for teams like Dragon, like Muller had a drive through early in the race uh, during a full course yellow, so. He was basically saving energy from that point. Almond's Mercedes were being very cautious as well. And, you know, full credit to them because it worked out. But you do get the sense of when everyone had this energy suddenly taken away from the right at the end, there was no real time to really react. I think it really, the teams that uh, were in constant communication with their drivers really benefited, whereas the ones who were, uh, maybe they will update you at certain periods in the race sort of strategy, that sort of backfired. And we saw Roland and Sims just carrying on and waste like a, sort of realized they were going to be disqualified, but there was no time to really react at that point. Like I mentioned Norman Nato earlier, he just did two corners after the restart before having to stop, which was a, a bit unfortunate for him, but I think he admitted he mismanaged it anyway. So yeah, there's there's a balance to be struck. I think Valencia went over it, but so could easily, on set, it could easily have gone the other way and we maybe wouldn't even be having this conversation. So I think like, like uh, you and maybe like the FIA have rightly said, they've stood by the rules saying, look, one out of 17 odd race, 20 odd races, that went wrong isn't a bad strike rate because we've had 19 others that have been great or 19 or might be actually 16 odd if i get the maths right maths it's a big thing isn't it um, i'm gonna have to throw big my thing. gcse and maths away because it's the thing. highest big, degree big in maths, maths that i have so. <laughs> I anyway uh should we talk about more of the race <laughs> yeah because i think why people thought it was a bit of a farce right is because antonio antonio felix da costa was so good he was so dominant he was brilliant yes we were probably robbed of this battle between him and Nick DeFries for the win, um, even in those final two laps, But because Nick DeFries had the higher energy, effectively, going into that. But, you know, the Costa had controlled the race and, and was doing a good job and could have, you know, saved energy, defended, you know, and, and, and won that race. And because the Costa did not win that race and we were robbed of that spectacle, it felt m- more damning, if that makes it. Like, if the Costa won that race with you know, other things, what we saw happen, maybe it's not as bad, you know, DaCosta was winning the race, he still won the race, so yes, craziness happened behind, but the same person who was winning won that race, but because he didn't, I think maybe that escalated this whole thing into what it has become, but let's just talk about DaCosta's drive quickly, obviously inherited pole from Stoffel Van Dorn, because of Van Dorn's penalty for a typo in the tyre, uh, blanket or tyre usage that he had sent in a document to the FIA, which crazy when you think about it, crazy. But first, before we get onto the Van Dorn thing, De Costa, you know, finally showed us something in this championship. It's not like he hadn't. It's just the way that the season's gone. But the first real sign that De Costa that won the championship last season, you know, is still here and could still easily play a part in this season's championship. Yeah, I think DaCosta maybe not had the rubber the green that he would have hoped to have in most of the quality sessions. I think there was only 
won so far when he made it to Super Bowl early in the season and he couldn't quite turn that into a result, unfortunately. I think it might have been the... Um, was not the first race in Rome, but I think the second one in Saudi Arabia, which I didn't watch, which is why I don't remember him being in Super Bowl this season. Uh, but um, but yeah, as we go, going back to Valencia, it was great to see him uh, convert. He, there was a bit of luck with Van Dorn, but like you said, he controlled the race. Uh, there was a very interesting bit um, in the middle of the race where De Vries, who had, quali- had served the penalty of his own for the contact at the end of Rome, was climbing up places up the field and Acosta knew De Vries was coming for him and so he rose for he um, uses his fan boost to pull a bit of a gap on De Vries after one of the safety cars and then goes for attack mode emerges just in front of De Vries and it was obviously you know uh, <laughs> Stoffel van Dorn and De Costa are basically the two drivers that I think are, have taken the majority of fan boosts uh, in the past couple of years and obviously you know fan boost in itself is a bit of a controversial kind of gimmick uh, but but I thought that was very good management of Costa using the resources at his disposal to keep potentially a faster car and, and drive a combination because De Vries was saving so much energy for that final phase of the race at bay so there was there was good pace by Costa, but also very smart management I think uh, and it was just a shame that it all unraveled at the very end I do wonder if Costa regrets maybe not limping at home because I I thought that he was trying he saw Roland get past him and then Sims get past him on that very last lap and I think wonder I wonder if he was thinking oh I, he was in the sort of racing driver mode where he doesn't want to give up the position to Sims and not finish on the podium but at the same time he'd sort of just ran over with the energy and maybe if he had done the burn method he might have uh, taken a few more points out of it but but you know it's easy to say that in hindsight and you're not the one behind the wheel I guess so I. I Despite what happened at the very end, like you say, it was a very good uh, drive by the Costa, and I think that does add to the frustration. But I still think De Vries deserved the victory because he managed the energy so well, and uh, I, I take nothing away from Nick De Vries. This was uh, a superb drive by him throughout on that Saturday in very tricky conditions where a lot of drivers binned it, neither of them did. Yeah, because obviously De Vries has put himself in that position to attack on those final two laps, and because of the energy reduction. He ended up winning the race because he had the energy. So, and that's what we could have seen, especially down into the turn one, because it's such a long straight off the off the chicane. If he got a good exit, you know, he he would have been favourite because he, you know, De Costa would have had to have coasted a lot earlier than what the um, what the freeze would have had to, and we could have seen a pass. So probably the driver that was likely going to win that race won that race, um, but because of what happened, um, we will never know. But let's talk Van Dorn. Obviously. This is the thing now, like, are Mercedes the real deal? Like, are they the new Tech Cheetah? Like, are we going to see a Mercedes Tech Cheetah battle? And maybe, uh, well, even a harder question maybe to ask is, are we going to see a Mercedes Tech Cheetah battle? Because will the qualifying system allow it? And I think that's a separate issue in itself, but we'll, we'll talk about that in two seconds. But let's focus more on Van Dorn. Pole position, you know, we're thinking, okay, Mercedes are good, right? You know, Mercedes are looking really good, and then the penalty. And a lot of people are starting to get frustrated, even with this. I think there was just a build-up of frustration on Saturday, lots of it. Because people are how? We're in season six, season seven, sorry, of Formula E, right? And we're still getting these amateur-style mistakes. Like, we don't go to Formula One. We don't go to WEC, and we see these tyre infringements, or these people, and it's always pole position. It's never, oh, the guy in 18th is starting last because he's made a mistake. It's always pole. It's always the tough person that's starting first. It's, it's always someone who's significantly up the grid. And I think there's a, some frustration there as well, because, like, 
why are these mistakes still happening, Ed? Yeah, I do have a bit of sympathy for the uh, whoever's doing the admin at Mercedes because I'm not particularly good at admin myself, but <laughs> which is why I tend to get other people to do it. But um, yeah, so it was interesting because obviously this admin was in relation to tire allocation and Valencia. Uh, obviously, it's much more because there's a lot more fast corners. Michelin realized, oh, the tire deck is going to be quite high here. Uh, we should bring a spare set of tires for the team to use because the usual idea is, oh, we bring one set of tires that last the whole season. Obviously, with the, the whole reason we're going to Valencia in the first place was due to COVID disruption on the calendar. You want one that's sort of out of the way of the civilian population, basically, and not in the middle of the city centre. So that's why we're racing there. Uh, we also test there, of course, but that's uh, another matter. And um, so there, with this extra tyre allocation, uh, clearly whoever's doing it for Van Dorn's car, they uh, like you said, I think it was um, someone in Mark Weber, I think, in um, the BBC's co uh, coverage, basically just said, oh, we somebody put one digit out of place and uh, for the tire allocation when they were listing it on the technical passport, which is what they have to submit pre-weekend. If you remember back in season four, this caught out Audi with Daniel Apscar when Daniel App won in Hong Kong in the same race that Mortara spun out of the lead on, on the very penultimate lap or final lap. Uh, Daniel App won and had it stripped away from him because of uh, they put the they put the wrong detail on the technical. There was like a sticker they forgot to put on something very very. Um, rudimentary i think it's i think it's it's a nature of this form one day format everything is so rushed together but also uh uh i don't like i said i do have some sympathy but i do wonder from van dorn's point of view is he going to think well losing those three points for pole because all his times were just deleted he had to get permission from the suicide to actually start the race is he going to be thinking wow uh those three points are going to potentially cost me the driver's championship it's really close at the end of the season so, uh, so yeah, of course, he got the podium in the end because of the carnage and Mercedes being very conservative. But he might be thinking it could have been first place rather than third because it was still a quite strong drive on the Saturday from Van Dorn, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, the penalty is kind of overshadowed because he ended up finishing third. So he ended up very much like the freeze having the energy left to sort of to sort of obviously be fighting towards the end to, to try and get up some positions. And, you know, he probably wasn't expecting to find himself from like 15th where he probably started that safety car period on that final lap to to end up in, in third, which I suppose overshadowed. And obviously, you know, with the way the standings are at the moment, it's, it's looking very likely that this title fight might go down between two Mercedes drivers and maybe a one or two others. So, you know, that, that inter-team rivalry will also be very interesting to, to watch out for Mercedes. But also, Van Dorn will know that if he is in the best car, he can't afford to be losing points because he knows it gives the freest chance and it also gives his competitors chance to, to close the gap because currently Mercedes have a decent points haul advantage in the championship. Last thing to talk about on Saturday is Andre Lotterer because a poor Andre Lotterer. You know, he did have a good race, to, to, to be fair, on him on Sunday. But I feel like it's the same thing with Lotterer. We either see amazing... Or not so amazing. Yeah, I agree. It's sort of a bit up and down with Andre, uh, where almost like he, there's a situation where the first couple of races he couldn't get any points, so he kept taking more risks to try and get more points, and then as a result, binning more points. Uh, so a bit counterintuitive, you think. But um, yeah, I think Oliver Roan sort of has a similar thing where both of these drivers are they're naturally quite aggressive, but there's a sense of right, I'm gonna, just going to go for it and hope for the best. And uh, we saw Lotterer make a clumsy move on i think it was uh nato wasn't it yeah he was fighting with norman nato and he got the braking a bit wrong in the wet for the final chicane and then just binned it in the back of boemi took boemi out of the race 
and then later on he was fighting with Eduardo Mortara and basically went for a gap that was always going to close. Turn one is quite narrow. They have to start the race under the safety guard in the wet because uh, I think the first couple of oh, this is a bit narrow. Let's not forget Valencia is a bike, a MotoGP track uh, first. Uh, it wasn't designed for Formula racing cars. So it is that's probably one of the reasons why the, some of the corners are a bit faster and a bit narrow than we're used to. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a bit of a clumsy move for Lotter and he got a penalty for the race after because I think he had to retire, of course, on the Saturday from the second impact with with Mortara. But yeah, it's uh, it was a bit unfortunate. I think he did, like you said, he did redeem himself on, on the Sunday, which we're probably about to talk about. But, uh, but it was a bit frustrating to watch and uh, poor Andre getting himself in the wars and his I feel like his reputation is sort of starting to play against him slightly being as being a bit aggressive where people are seem coming and they think um they, they sort of know something's going to happen and so they start defending more than perhaps they would normally do so there's a there's a sense of some drivers you see him coming up in your mirror and you think oh don't want to fight that one too hard but with Lotterer they sort of think uh-oh I'm not letting him pass me again because he barged me out of the way last week or something like that no, yeah, I, had, I tend to agree, you know, drivers could be treating him slightly different, and obviously, you know, it wasn't a great race, but he did perform much better on Sunday, and let's talk about Sunday, because it was a wet qualifying, well, a wet start to qualifying, which then dried out, which means everybody in Q4 made it through to Super Bowl, and Mr. Jake Dennis, right, puts it on pole position, now then, this was the race, Ed, everyone said, you don't want to be out front. Nah, you don't want it. It's a Moji. It's Mo free race, right? Mo GP. You know, stalking. Stalking is the aim of the game here, right? And then we're gonna pounce at the last lap, take the lead, win the race. But Jake Dennis said no. Jake Dennis said no. I'm not doing that. I'm gonna take pole position and I'm gonna dominate this race. And that is exactly what he did. He threw the script. Everyone saying, you know, I'd rather be in second. I'd rather be in third. Get that slipstream. Save that energy. Attack at the end. But Jake Dennis dominated that race and fully deserved that victory. Thoughts on Jake Dennis, Ed? Yeah, it was really impressive, actually. You, I mean, you, you, I remember you phoned me up after qualifying uh, on the on the Sunday, and we were talking a bit about Jake Dennis. He said, "Oh, it's going to be interesting because obviously he getting Group Four and also going last in Super Bowl because he, I mean, he did do really well to top the session in in Q4, and that sort of gave him the best chance at Super Bowl. But he still." You know, he didn't mess up. We did see a couple of drivers. I think Nick Cassidy on the Sunday qualifying did uh, mess up slightly and lost a few uh, good positions because of it. But uh, Jake Dennis didn't. And he'd had such a difficult season before. I think there were a lot of people who had kind of not only written off Jake Dennis, but written off BMW as well. BMW and Jetty. We talked last episode at the Rome. I basically said, are you saying that BMW have given up on this season? Uh, which uh, looks a little odd in, in retrospect now, of course. But uh, obviously, Valencia being... There, you, there are some people saying, well, Valencia may be a freak race. But it was not a freak victory by Jake Dennis. He had so much pressure from, firstly, Alex Lynn, because uh, a lot of qualified behind that to serve the penalty, as I mentioned. And then when Lynn was, uh, unfortunately, punted out of the way by Norman Nader, he had to hold off Norman Nato. There was even a bit where Oliver Turby went for attack mode very early. And he just about emerged um, when he went for tank mode himself, Jake Dennis, in front of Oliver Turvey. And of course, there was the very end when the, the uh, BMW Andretti engineers were in Jake Dennis's ear, saying, don't go, you need to hold off for like five more seconds. And of course, he's got Norman Nato right behind him. There's no safety guard to protect him. Uh, and so there was a very real danger that uh, Norman Nato could have got through, but he managed it perfectly. I just can't think of an area where he put a, a wheel wrong or a breaking point out of place on the... Um, on the Sunday race, so um, 
And, you know, he's such an underdog. As I said, when he got the drive, a lot of people didn't think he'd even get the drive at BMW against, like, Lucas Auer and the others. But uh, he impressed me, them in the simulator, and he's been able to translate that into a real-life performance uh, in Valencia. So I think that's really going to do his confidence a world of good as the season goes on. He's up into the top eight, I think, in the... Uh, he's eighth place in the driver's standings, of course. So uh, I don't think this is the beginning of a title tilt to Jake Dennis, but if he can keep getting lots and lots of point scores, then uh, Maxi Gunther might have something to worry about because it wasn't it wasn't a great weekend for his teammate Maxi Gunther, who spun off on the Saturday and caused one of the safety cars. So, um, But yeah, I was really happy for Jake Dennis. What well, he said after the race was, oh, I'm because uh, he was interviewed immediately after, he says, I'm still buzzing like an old fridge. That was what he said, which I thought was hilarious and sort of, <laughs> He sounds like someone who knows what an old fridge sounds like. He's not just saying that. So I'm not saying it comes from like absolute poverty, but he wasn't exactly born with a silver spoon in his mouth that funded his entire career. So um, he's really done well, Dennis. So I'm proud of the lad. Yeah, full house as well. It's not just, you know, just race win. Pole position, group qualifying, fastest lap. Like he took maximum points from that weekend. Didn't so Lynn question- take fastest lap? Uh, I thought Lin Dennis had it, Lin, Lin, I'm pretty sure Lynn inferred took fastest lap. Uh, yeah, unless Lynn stole it on the end. Oh, okay. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He did. Dennis did have fastest lap for a good, a good majority in that race. Um, so, but one point, pretty much full house um, that that Dennis got from that weekend. But bring, talking about Lynn there, was Lynn wrong to not overtake? Because I'm going to take right now, as much as I'm really happy Jake Dennis won that race, Lynn was faster, right? And Lynn showed that he was faster, but he didn't overtake. He was close enough and we saw they we know that they didn't want to lead the race right they wanted to wait till the end but we know with formula e when you're in a train when you, and and because dennis was you know managing and everyone was just staying behind there was a train about nine cars and when you're in a train in formula e the chance of being punted or the chance of something happening greatly increases and I think that's what happened for Alex Lynn because obviously he did get punted um, because Nato was hit, which then hit Lynn and then that sent him off, right? And then Lynn does a fabulous recovery drive to make sure he gets onto the podium, right? Um, but if he, from that stalking, like 10, 15 minutes into that race, should have Lynn made the move and then controlled the race from there? Well, it's easy to say it in hindsight, but I think everyone was really scared after what happened on Saturday because I saw this with uh, Mitch Evans as well. Um, the Mitch Evans was actually having qualified really near the back and was having a really good race and then got up to ninth and then suddenly thought, uh, was told that the engineers, oh, there might be an extra lap like yesterday. You need to save energy. And then he lost loads of places as a result when he should potentially have run a more aggressive strategy. And I think a similar thing happened at Mahindra of Lynn. Lynn decided to stay in the wheel tracks of Jake Dennis, slip, slip string down the straight, save energy. And but it also helps, I think, that the Mahindra is one of the most energy efficient cars in the field. I think we've seen that with Sims in Rome when he finished second to Van Dorn and was a real threat in the closing stages. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, like you say, uh, him not making the move left him... And I don't, I don't want to say that the incident with Norman Nato was Alex Lynn's fault. It was absolutely Norman Nato's fault, and they were right to give Nato a five-second penalty for it, I think, because it was just a little bit clumsy in that sort of section just after a tank mode where he bumped into the back of him. Uh, but Lynn, in not overtaking Dennis, you're right, put himself in a position where that kind of thing can happen, and you're vulnerable to that kind of thing. So I think he will personally rue that. And it did seem after the race that he sort of knew he had the pace to potentially win that thing. But it's so hard to judge when you're in the moment earlier on and you're thinking about making in the end. 
especially, like I said, in light of the big controversy that happened the day before, uh, that uh, I think it was understandable why he didn't. Uh, so they might rue a win lost, but for Lin personally, he needed to get his season underway and he's got big points. So that's the main thing, I think. So in the bigger picture, I think uh, Lin probably made the right call. It was an impressive comeback as well, seeing him breeze past Lotterer, Rast, uh, and, and others as well. And I think Vern as well. He just breezed past Vern like he wasn't even there. So uh, yeah, it was, it was still a very impressive performance by Alex Lin. Yeah, you mentioned Rast there. I think it's just very quickly a good point that he had a great race, obviously up from 14th, was running in, in the podium, but obviously finishing, I think it was fifth in the end. I think uh, Rast had two really good races because so, he finished in the points quite high in both of them. And he's sort of become the dark horse. There are like two dark horses in the driver's championship. There's Freins, who's sort of in the middle of the Jaguars and Mercedes and Tachitas. And, uh, and and like you say, Rene Rast in the Audis up to sixth. So uh, I think Rast... Uh, could be Audi are really pushing for this title and they've got some really decent pace I think if either the Audis is going to get a win before the season's out I think it might actually be Rast interesting but a team I want to talk about very quickly is Jaguar because great start to the season out you know I wrote I wrote them off because of their pace in Valencia right and now that we've done two races we've done one in Diria you know we did one in the where, where were we before Rome we did one in Rome and then here we are in Valencia, right? We come to an actual circuit and all of that pace from Jaguar disappears. So are we seeing now that Jaguar have done the Formula E trick and have got it right? Their street circuit car, brilliant, right? Pistol resistance. But their, their car far on an actual street circuit just struggles. It doesn't have the pace. It's not, it's not made. It's not got the characteristics in that car to deal with long sweeping corners and long straights well it's interesting because i read an interview with degrassi uh, prior to the saturday race where he's basically saying that the suspension uh, when they're designing it they're not setting it up for a sort of l low for a sort of traditional so they're actually setting up high to deal with curbs on street circuits where you get like the sort of sausage berlin style curbs so i do think uh, the, there may be an element of it's a, it's a circuit the cars aren't designed for so the so some teams might do well who might not otherwise do well but i think also the qualifying sessions particularly on the sunday uh, with the weather really caught jagger out because they'd done so well up to that point earlier in the season they were in the first group they were always going to qualify badly and then from then on the sunday race was always going to be quite difficult to make their way up through the pack uh the the saturday race it was more i'll call it a case of um for qualifying for that, I think it was it it was dry, wasn't it, in the Saturday qualifying, if I remember correctly, and um, and then it rained for the race. So uh, I think Sam Bird was running, I think like eighth or ninth. He sort of made his way up through the pack, uh, and and then obviously the final out happened. Sam Bird got disqualified, and I think Mitch Evans uh, crashed into one of the dragons trying to make up ground on, on Saturday and basically took himself out of the race. Uh, crashed into Sete Camera, I think, because Camera had to retire as well. So, um, yeah, they, 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 it wasn't a great, um, even taking into account the, obviously the, the conditions not playing to Django's strength in qualifying, I think they, uh, they were still very efficient and they, Sam Bird, I think was showing up midway through the race as the driver that was saving energy the best along with the two Mahindras in, on Saturday. But, um, but it was uh, a case of them having too much ground to make up and, uh, but I think both things are true is what I'm trying to say is that it's a circuit doesn't suit them, but also they were unlucky in terms of being in the first quality group. 
You could also say that it's a track that suits BMW. You know, BMW have been notoriously quick round Valencia and more quick round Valencia here, but haven't really been quick elsewhere this season. So it'd be really interesting to see how BMW seasons progresses from here. When we go to Monaco in two weeks' time, are we back to normal BMW? We're like, where's the pace? Where is BMW? Or are we back to, you know what, BMW got a bit of pace. Maxi Gunford, Jake Dennis, they're doing something. So that is one storyline that I'm really looking forward to finding out once we get to Monaco um, next weekend. Quick news now, just to wrap up the show, um, two little tiny bits. Well, I say two little tiny bits. First tiny bit, um, Neo signing up to Gen 3. So it's pretty much Mercedes now that is, is not really signed up. For, and Porsche, I think, who um, haven't signed up for Gen 3 yet. Um, but we're getting there. More manufacturers, is, which is good. So um, I'm expecting the likes of Porsche and Mercedes to, to sign up. Yeah. Also, I think Dragon haven't signed up. Did they sign up? I don't remember. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's... Um... Mahindra, Tachita, Neo, uh, Porsche did sign up, didn't they? Because I remember that. Um, I uh, can't remember. I might have been mistaken. Nissan signed up. Nissan definitely Nissan signed up. Nissan have signed yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure Porsche did as well. So I think it's just, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure Dragon and Mercedes are the only two ones to my mind that haven't signed up. And also, uh, we don't know what McLaren are going to do as well as the key thing, as I keep saying whenever this comes up. But yeah, good to see. I think good to see Neo for free because they were ones quite vocal about uh, being really positive about the Gen 3 rules and in sense of the whole energy management thing which is what we were talking about in the first half of this show it's going to be interesting to see with the fast charging coming and how that affects whether they decide to keep the the current rules with the energy reduction in mind if they're going to do fast charging as well because it might negate the need to do that or they might keep that in just to keep the challenge in there it's going to be a, a key decision to make I think but with the rules finalising the team signing up you would think that the debate's been resolved and they've all made their mind up. It's just a couple of uh, a couple of decisions have to be made from like the likes of Mercedes, as you say. Yeah, I think it's the same with Jaguar, isn't it? Like Jaguar haven't officially signed up, but yeah, that's the exact Jaguar is the right, one I was forgetting. Like Jaguar have signed up, but not officially signed up. They're waiting to announce their motorsport plans and so forth. And then the other one, obviously, we go to Monaco in two weeks' time. Uh, so the rest of the calendar has been announced, which is really good. Um, we go to another actual circuit in Mexico, just not the Hermanos Rodriguez circuit we go to a new one which I, I'm not very good at pronouncing the name of I'll let Puebla. anyone go with that one there we go Puebla um, and then we've got the rest of the Canada which was ret- sees the return of New York London which I'm delighted about Ed um, because I felt like London especially with the vaccination obviously us being British um, it'd be very good to hopefully get to that race and finally be back in the media centre and finally be back at an FE track but it's also good a uh, good chance of there actually being some spectators allowed around the outside section, but the indoor section will be uh, a no-go, um, which I'll be surprised about if it is in July, because technically if the roadmap from the government carries on the way it is, um, we should be fine for any event from from the 21st of June, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, but, but first ideas are that there won't be any spectators indoors, but there will be spectators outdoors. Uh, I don't know what the same is for New York, but we finished the season in Berlin. And I think they obviously wanted to keep Berlin on the calendar. And I think maybe August ending the season, Ed, in Berlin rather than London, gives you know our European countries who have been a bit slower with the vaccine take-up um, just chance to get more done and a higher chance to maybe get more fans from Europe potentially maybe or just Germany in itself to attend the season finale races in, in Berlin yeah and I think that that kind of reasoning uh, to get fans actually on site is the reason why races like Seoul and Paris uh, 
and I think San Santiago, which was originally supposed to be the season opener, they've all been delayed to 2020, 2021, 2022, season eight, basically, in the hope that, that uh, things will open up a bit more by then. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's some good logic. I do hope that we do at least see fans on site of Berlin, even if we don't see them on site of London. One of the reasons uh, why, even if the restrictions lift, they might be a bit hesitant is because the Formula E team has been obviously traveling over the globe. They still have to stay in their bubbles. Uh, so, um, so that might be why we have all the teams sort of inside and the fans outside. Uh, that, that might be the reason for that. But, uh, but it would be great just to have the people on site able to see the cars go by them at the XL Arena. And I used to live right right across the river from that uh, when I was at university and I was pushing for the race to be there instead of Banasi Park. So I'm really glad that it's finally happening. Although I was very pessimistic about it a few years ago. I said, I'd eat my hat if we see the London e return in my lifetime. Better get that hat ready. Might have to deep fry it or make a cake hat or something. Um, I'm, I'm doing your questions in reverse. I'm sorry if this is confusing. Um, no, no worries. Uh, Puebla instead of Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez. Understandable because uh, the Hermanos Rodriguez has been used as a field hospital at the moment. I don't know much about Puebla, uh, unfortunately. Other than that, it's sort of an a little bit like Hermanos Rodriguez. It's kind of an, there's an oval version of it that's probably going to be adapted for Formula E. Uh, so I'm excited about it. It will, it will be interesting. I think it might be a little bit different to Valencia and it's not designed for motorbikes so uh, like I said I don't know the layout they haven't announced it yet officially they're still waiting for FI homologation as they are for XL interestingly so they might change that layout a little bit especially in light of fans being outside of the grandstands and placements and stuff um, and Monaco using the full layout I think that's great uh, because not only are they using the full layout but they're also they're reprofiled or well, not reprofiled but they're using a slightly uh, different version of Saint Devot, which is identical to the one they used in the very first Monaco Grand Prix, not E-Prix, because they didn't have electric racing in 1929. But uh, the very first Monaco Grand Prix in 1929 had this sort of very much wider, also there's more of a curb and a tighter apex for Formula One. We've got the wider traditional one that sort of, I don't think cuts across the pit lane, but, uh, but, but definitely is more, flows a bit more naturally and um, it's certainly much more naturally than the slam divot the bridge version that we had before and the other changes to the chicane the exit of the chicane has been made a little bit um more technical so uh we might see a, potentially a couple of more overtakes into the chicane than because uh, that was obviously a prime passing spot in formula one but in formula we might see it a bit different no info on where attack mode is happening what i heard is they might be putting it at the lowe's hairpin on the outside so that would be very interesting, of course, having those iconic shots of the tunnel, Lowe's, Portier, Casino Square, all that section, I think is great for Formula E. And uh, never mind the comparisons with Formula One, just ignore that. It's not relevant. Uh, just enjoy it for what it is, because I think it's going to be a really great race. And Monaco, which was one of my least favorite circuits on the Formula E calendar, let's be honest, is now suddenly turned into one of my favorites. Hey, <laughs> how did that happen? It's one race that I'm really, really, really sad that I'm not going to. I've been to every Monaco e Um Well, you're far um, from the only one in that respect. So, um, I'm delighted. Uh, well, I'm not delighted that I'd be missing it. But I would if we if if it was non-COVID rules, I'd be there. But never mind, never mind. Monaco is a special place. If anyone ever gets a chance to go to Monaco for Formula E, Formula One, whatever Monaco historic, or just in general on holiday, uh, go. It's an amazing place. Um, you might feel a bit out of place um, with the high prices and so forth, and the yachts and the so forth, but it's a nice experience. It is a cool experience. Um, but that is it, Ed. Thank you so much for coming on today and chatting with me. 
Oh, I like that little uh, brochure for Monica you did there. I sort of feel like a... <laughs> yeah. By the I way, you have the, to... I should be. I should be the tourist headhunt. What is it? Yeah, like, just, just don't mention that you have company. to be a tax exile that, yeah. uh, that earns loads and loads of money. I sort of. So I hope growing this mustache would enable me to. I don't think Nigel Mansell ever lived in Monaco. He lived in like, Isle of Man, so <laughs> don't, not, not quite as glamorous. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for you obviously listening or watching this episode on either the um, YouTube sh- uh, channel or on the various uh, podcast apps that you can listen to the show on. Thank you so much for watching the FEZ show. We'll be back um, either for a preview of Monaco or a review of Monaco, whatever, depending on the schedule of the lads and, and everyone at FEZ. So thank you once again for for watching and listening. Please remember to hit that like and subscribe button wherever you are. And we'll see you very soon.